right, all right. We're in the series called Summer Road Trip. How many of you have already taken a vacation with your family? Raise your hand, all right. So what I'm about to share with you from the internet, and by the way, everything on the internet is true, right? Right, I'm a male French model, okay. Found that on the internet too. Um, ten, <laughs> 10 ways to keep your kids from driving you crazy on a road trip, okay. I found this on the internet. I thought, who writes this stuff? Because as I read it, I thought some of this is like from Captain Obvious, and like some of it, you know, you just kind of think, okay, wait a minute. So number one was this, set expectations. When you go on a road trip, always talk about the expectations of the road trip. Like how many of you set your kids down and talk about how they're going to act on vacation road trip? That's right. When I was younger, my dad said it went like this. If your brother hits you once, you hit him back twice okay? If your sister pulls your hair, you pull her hair harder. That's kind of how things work. Number two, create a vacation scrapbook as you go. Now, maybe you're one of these parents that you go to the store and you buy your kid a journal and you hand your kid a journal and say, on our road trip, I would like for you to keep a diary of all the special places we go to. Uh, Let me tell you about the scrapbook I had growing up on road trips, all right? Uh, I had a brother and a sister that were about the same age as me, and so when we traveled, I mean, it was crazy. And our scrapbook included stitches in the back of the head, (laughs) casts signed by all the nurses of the ER, Uh, Some of those ice packs that you get signed by the doctor, you know, those are cool scrapbook things. In fact, one of my favorite scrapbook moments was when I was learning to ski at Tin Keller Lake there in Oklahoma, and uh, my mom and dad, you know, they had had enough of us in the car, so they pulled over beside the lake and said, hey, you guys go out there and skip rocks. And so me and my brother, we get out of the, uh, the baby blue station wagon, and we walk over to the, uh, to the lake, and we begin skipping rocks. And my brother says, hey, go up there a little bit, and, and when you get up there, duck down, and I'm going to skip a rock over your head and see if I can do that. The only problem was he didn't tell me how long to duck. And I came up, and all of a sudden I heard, I heard this hard ringing, and I felt this blood coming down the back of my head. And to this day, if you look at the back of my head, there's about seven stitches, and there's a scar there. That was what our scrapbook looked like growing up, all right? (laughs) Number three, bring along plenty of toys. They tell you that if you're a parent and you want to keep your kids from driving you crazy, stop by the local Dollar General and pick up something you don't care if they ever lose. And so one of the things they also said is, take things like string and pipe cleaners and things that you can do crafts with your kids in the car. Now, who does this? Okay, you give an eight-year-old boy a bunch of string and some pipe cleaners, and he will take the whole back of the van captive, poke somebody's eye out, and claim he didn't do anything. Amen? The next thing they said, reward good behavior. You know, give out a candy bar if he does it right. The next one, stop and smell the roses. You should stop at the most strange places you can and and just enjoy yourself along the trip. Kind of like when Dad says, hey, we're going to pull over here and look at rattlesnakes, kids. How many of you guys want to stop at the rattlesnake farm? All right? That's just awkward to me. Um, The other one is let your kids have a say in where you stop. Who writes this? All right? How many of you have ever asked the question to your kids in the car, hey, where do you guys want to stop for lunch? Like it's a democratic state, right, in your minivan. There's There's no democracy on a trip. If you ask that to the kids, there will be war breakout between Burger King and Chipotle. I mean, it would just be bad. So don't let your kids have a say, all right? Just take them. They're just lucky to get something to eat, amen? Don't skip the pit stops. They say that if you skip the pit stops, the odor in your car will get three times worse, okay? Ventilation is your friend. 
It's your friend. The next one, I love this, eat well. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't go on a road trip and say, hey, I'm going to take lots of fruit, fresh vegetables and fruits and vegetables and good food, and we're going to eat very healthy on this trip. No, I'm going to Destin, Florida, and I'm going to eat at the donut hole. Amen? Can I get an amen? Yes. I'm going to be dropping some cake donut, all right? So you can forget. I just think, okay, who would write this? The other one is anticipate illness. So like what they're saying is every kid needs their own barf bag. You know, sign it. You can embroider it. You can cricket it. You can put their, 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 their name on the side of their barf bag. This is Johnny's barf bag. Now, don't you be barfing in Johnny's barf bag, okay? So you should anticipate illness, and uh, you should keep your car very well ventilated to keep strong odors from occurring. That's what it says right there. I just can't believe it says that. And then the number one it says is this, is that when you travel to keep your kids from driving you crazy, timing is everything, how many of you are parents of preschoolers? Okay, some of you are parents of preschoolers. Here's your thought. Your thought is, we will get up early, or we will drive at night, and I will get us there before the kids can peep a word, right? The only problem is, you've wrangled your kids all day and all night just to get them in the car, just to get them to sleep, and you get in the car, and what do you need to do? You need to sleep, right? There is not enough coffee on the planet Earth to keep you awake. So, because of that, I have created my own list of things to do from keeping your kids from driving you crazy on a road trip. Here it is. It's one thing. Benadryl. (laughs) And in light of that, I have created a new product that I will be selling after the service today. I've gotten with a local candy maker. I'm going to make Benadryl-flavored blow pops. You stick one in your kid's mouth, and in 10 licks, you hear nothing out of them. All the hives that they had, all the bites that they had are gone, and they sleep all the way from here and to Chicago, okay? And so Benadryl-flavored blow pops, I just thought that would be funny. But if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 21. We're in our road trip series, and today we're going to take a stop at, I think, a very, very important place. Now, if you're like me, I have a favorite place that I love to go to. I love the beach. I love going down to the beach. I've always loved the beach. There's just something special about knowing that every place that you look at on the beach, that all the water and the waves and the way that it rolls in and pulls sand out and all that cool stuff. But I love the beach. It's like my favorite place. I will get in a car at night and drive all night to get to the beach if I have to. I will stay up all day. I'll drive all night, whatever it takes. I just think it's great to have a favorite place. And the thing about a favorite place is you have favorite things you do there. You have favorite restaurants. You have favorite people that you see. In the Bible, Jesus had a favorite place. And if you ask most people, where was Jesus' favorite place? Some people would say, well, it had to be Golgotha because that was the cross. That was the place he was crucified. Or it would have to be the tomb because, you know, that's where that he came out of the grave. Or, you know, maybe the Jordan River, all these different places. But when you look in Scripture, there's one place that is most identifiably the greatest, most frequented spot of Jesus in Scripture. It's known as the Mount of Olives. So if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 21. We're going to be tossing around some different scriptures today. What that means is uh, we're going to do a little Bible drill, okay? So look at your neighbor and say, I'm faster than you, okay? I'm going to find these verses faster than you. The Mount of Olives, let me tell you a little bit about it. It was located east and next to Jerusalem's old city. 
And so here's the old city of Jerusalem, and here's the, the Kidron Valley that would go between it if there's a highway there now. And then there's this huge picture you can see up on the screen where you see the place known as the Mount of Olives. And you see that road that cuts between the Jerusalem area and the Mount of Olives area. The other thing we know about the Mount of Olives is it was a Jewish cemetery. There's over 150,000 graves on that very mountain. Many famous Jewish people have been buried there. And one of the things they do is if you're a very prominent Jewish person, they come and they stack little pebbles. You can see them on top of some of the graves. They stack little pebbles on top of the graves as a way of honoring you. Instead of sticking a flower, they would stick a rock, a, a stone of remembrance. It was the place where David fled from his son Absalom in Scripture. Today, there are several churches that have been built and are located on top of the Mount of Olives. It's also the place in the Bible where the Bible tells us that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray in Luke chapter 11. They came to him and said, Lord, we want to know how to pray. And he said, this is how you pray. Your Father, which art in heaven. He begins to give them that discourse. It's also the place in Luke 19 where Jesus stood and he wept over the city of Jerusalem because they knew that they were going to reject him as the Messiah. So you say, that sounds like a bad place. It wasn't for Jesus. Because Jesus constantly went back to this place again and again. In fact, it was the place he would go that most of the crowds, or you would never hear in Scripture, the crowds would ever follow him there. It was kind of like his place. It was a very special place. Why? He would often go there and listen to the Father speak to him. So if you have a pen today, I want to ask this question. Why was the Mount of Olives so special to Jesus? We're going to look at four reasons why, and then we're going to lift a principle out of all four of them. Number one, it was special because it was a place of renewal. Luke chapter 21, beginning with verse 37, we hear this story. It says, each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each morning he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. It was a place of renewal for Jesus. Here in Luke 21, we know that this is literally a week before he would go to the cross. And it's amazing to me that on Jesus' bucket list, instead of going to like the Grand Canyon or to like, you know, 50 million other places, the one place he wanted to go for the entire week before he was crucified was back to the mountainside. Why? Because it was a place of renewal for him. You see, the place where we go to be alone with God is always a special place. Right after high school, I interned at this church in Oklahoma City, and uh, I was getting ready for college. I was taking some summer classes, and, and during that season of my life, I was really trying to pray about what God wanted in my future. You know, I mean, I, I didn't want to just be like every other college freshman and just kind of do the whole college freshman deal. I really wanted to chase God in my life. And so the church that I was at had this little bitty closet that was off of like the main sanctuary area, and you could come and get a key, and you could enter from the outside door, and it was a prayer room. So, you know, I was barely 18 years of age. I had just given my life to Christ about a year ago. And there would be many Friday night or Saturday night where I would just kind of say goodbye to my friends for the evening. Maybe I would see them about 9 o'clock or whatever. But about 10 p.m., I would drive up to that church, and I would go into that prayer closet, 
And there was an altar, and there was a Bible that would lay on the altar, and they would have prayer requests around the altar. And I remember sometimes going in there at 10 p.m. and leaving about 2 a.m. It was just special. I mean, it wasn't anything big. It wasn't anything hoopla. It wasn't like they had, like, you know, plasma televisions where you can watch all this cool stuff. But it was just a place that you could go and be alone with God. And I want to tell you, the place that Jesus left the temple to go be on the mountainside, it had nothing to do with the topography of olives. It had everything to do with the place of being renewed by the Father. Isn't that crazy? Jesus himself, even though he was fully God and fully man, needed to daily leave the temple and go be renewed. He had to go find a place to be with God. Can I tell you one of the most important principles you'll ever face as a follower of Christ that you'll ever deal with in your life is this principle. Where do I go to find renewal? I wrote down this thought. The place you go to in life when you're hurt, lonely, tired is a reflection of who and what you place your trust in. I mean, in our society, we live in such a noisy culture, we go to a lot of places. Sometimes we go to social media. Sometimes we go to the internet. Sometimes we go to a best friend. Sometimes, you know, we'll we'll, we'll go to a substance. But Jesus went to the mountainside and he was with the Father. I want to say something else about this too. In our society, it's, it's amazing that Jesus didn't find renewal hanging out with the academics In the temple, he found renewal one-on-one with the Father on a mountain. There's a big difference. There's a big difference. This is where Jesus spent the entire last week of his life, and, and he knew, hey, I'm about to die. I'm about to go to the cross, but I've got to go to the place where I can find renewal because the place we go to reflects who we trust in. He trusted in the Father. Luke 6 Verse 12, it says that Jesus went to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. There are many other references in the New Testament where it talks about Jesus going away to a place to pray. Most scholars believe that place he frequented again and again and again was the Mount of Olives. Why? It was the place he could go find renewal and be with the Father. I want to encourage you today. We live in such a world that's so busy and so full of so many things Go to the right place. Go to the right place. Jesus loved the Mount of Olives because it was a place of renewal. Number two, Jesus loved the Mount of Olives because it was a place of reminding. In Matthew 24, Jesus is about to go to the cross here, and and right before he does, remember, he's teaching in the temple, and he's going to the Mount of Olives at night. Verse 1 of Matthew 24, he says this. It says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, what will happen 
Or when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and at the end of the age? Jesus goes on from this point for two whole chapters in Scripture, Matthew 24 and 25, and reminds them that he's coming back. He basically says, these are the things you're going to see. You're going to begin to see this happen and this happen and this happen. So not only was it a place of renewal, but for Jesus, it was a place of reminding. It's like he could sit down and say, guys, listen, I can't tell you when I'm coming back because I don't even know that. Only the Father knows that. But I want you to be looking, and here's what you look for. When I used to be on trips, we would have Blue's Clues. Remember Blue's Clues? Yeah. It was like, hey, there's a Blue's Clue. Okay, God's given us a Blue's Clue right here. He looks at us in Scripture, and he says, when you see these things, you know it's about to go down. So in Matthew 24, verses 32 through 35, he says this. He says, now, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. In other words, you'll see evidence of it. Verse 33, even so, when you see all these things, you know it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, I've noticed in the last four or five years, Hollywood is doing their best to try to portray what they think the end times are going to look like. I mean, it's crazy. We've had movies about the Mayan ruins. We've had movies about, you know, this, about that, about how the destruction within the world is going to happen. And, and they've got all these scenarios. And it only serves to remind us what Jesus reminded these people about on the Mount of Olives. And here's the reminder. Pack your bags because I'm coming back. Pack your bags, Jesus said, because I'm coming back. And when I come back, I won't come back as a suffering servant. I'll come back as king. Not a political king, but the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I love it. The Mount of Olives was a place of reminding. God wants us to live every day mindful of the season in which we are in. We should pack our bags because Jesus is coming back. Number three, it was a place of releasing. In the Bible, there's a a spot that was very specific in Jesus' life. It was known as the Garden of Gethsemane. The garden was located on the rim of the Mount of Olives. So as you would come down the Mount of Olives on your way to the Kidron Valley into the old city of Jerusalem, you would pass what was known as the Garden of Gethsemane. And one chapter later in Matthew 26, verse 36, listen to what it says. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. So I want you to get this. The Last Supper had already happened. Judas was already ready to turn him over to the Roman soldiers. And on the way down from the mountain, Jesus realizes something. I can't go there to the cross until I release something here. You see, the garden and the Mount of Olives was a place of releasing for Jesus. It was the place where he released everything of who he was to the Father and in turn made a decision that changed all of humanity. Verse 42, 
He went away a second time and he prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away from me unless I drink it, may your will be done. You see, the the place we surrender every part of our life to God's will is always special. I grew up in, y'all heard this story, I grew up in Oklahoma City, but we grew up in this little, this little bitty house, probably about 13, 1400 square feet, and there were five of us. And there were three that always lived at home and two that always lived away because I had older brothers and sisters. So all the time, there was five in our house. But when my oldest sister moved out, I got her bedroom, and that was right before my junior year, and it was in that very room that I gave my life to Christ. I remember kneeling beside of my bed on April 5th, 1987, and saying yes to Jesus, and getting off my knees saying, my life will never be the same. I remember two months later, sitting in that bedroom on July 19th of that same year, and surrendering my life to ministry and saying, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll say whatever you want me to say. I just want to chase you. I just want to do whatever you want to do. We sold that house this last year. My mom passed away about a year and a half ago. The last time I walked in that house, I had to go walk back in that room and look at those old wood floors where I knelt and I surrendered to Jesus. There's something special about the place that we surrender every part of our life to God's will. That's what Jesus did. The garden was that place. Some of you in this room, you're holding on to things that you can't release. You want to release them. It's hard for you to, you know, you've got guilt, you've got anger, you've got things in your life. Maybe it's an addiction, whatever it is. Jesus gave us the principle here that even he himself had to come to a place where he had to stop and he had to release it. What is it in your life today that God wants you to release? Oh, he wants you to be renewed. He wants you to be reminded, but he's waiting for you and I to release it. I said this a few weeks ago, and I want to say it again. Victory happens through surrender, not through strength. Victory in our lives personally will always happen through personal surrender, never through trying to be stronger. We can't outmuscle it. It's kind of like this motif. One of the things I love about the movie The Passion of the Christ is the different scenes. And the scene when, when Jim Caviezel is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying, and he's praying in Aramaic. And he's saying it, and they're putting the words underneath it, and he's trying to release it to God, saying, God, is there any other way that I can do this? And if you know the, the, the story there in the movie, they have this motif of Satan kind of looking over to him going, it's not worth it, you'll never accomplish it. And in the midst of that, there's this snake that crawls over Jesus' arms, and at that point, I'm kind of like, oh, snakes get me down. And uh, looking at this whole deal, and all of a sudden, Jesus stands up, and when he's made the decision to release it, he takes his foot, and he steps on the head of the serpent, and he crushes the serpent's head. Boom! I like that moment. It's a beautiful picture of what happens in your life and my life when we release it and we surrender it. We have victory. I don't know about you, I want victory in my life. I don't want average. I don't want, nah, it's all good, so-so. <laughs> I want victory. The Mount of Olives was special because it was the place of releasing. 
Number four, it was a place of returning. Turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Flip over there real quickly. Let's hear some of your devices moving. Okay. Some of you are doing really good with that. Acts chapter 1. Jesus had been crucified. He had been risen from the grave. The Bible tells us after he came out of the grave, he was alive for 40 days and he walked around teaching people. For 40 days after he came out of the grave. And at the moment of which he was about to ascend and go to the Father, guess where he was? The Mount of Olives. Verse 9, here's what the Bible says. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken who, is t- uh, who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the very same way you have seen him go into heaven. So get this thought. Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives. He's taught people for 40 days. He ascends to be with the Father, and the very last spot where his foot touched the ground on this earth was the Mount of Olives. You say, ah, big deal. I want you guys to put the picture back up there, if you would, of the Mount of Olives. On top of that mountain is a hotel. You can see the very top. It's called the Seven Arches Hotel. Some years ago, they discovered that there was a fault line located underneath the Hotel of Arches, the Seven Arches Hotel. Such a fault line that they believe geologically one day that there's going to be a massive earthquake. Hmm, that sounds familiar. Keep the picture up there if you would, guys. And I want you to turn in your Bible real quick to Zechariah 14. Yeah, that's right. I just said Zechariah. We're going to break out some OT in here, all right? Zechariah 14. If you have a smartphone or a smart Bible, you can search it real quick. Listen to what the Bible says. Zechariah 14, verse 4. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley. Sounds like an earthquake. With half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. The hotel on the top of Mount of Olives is no coincidence. The fault line is no coincidence. The very spot where Jesus' foot left this earth, the very manner in which he went to be with the Father is the same way he will descend. And when his foot hits the earth, the Bible says in Zechariah 14.4, he's going to split that mountain in half. See, here's the problem with that. We lose sight of that. I mean, if I, if I worked for Fox or CNN or ABC, I would go ahead and set up the truck. Put the dish out. I'd have the crews ready. I would have GoPros from every angle. Because here's the thing. We don't know when Jesus is coming back, but we know where he's coming back. And some of you go, well, I thought he was coming back to Texas. <laughs> some of you are from Texas, okay. Some of you are like, I could have swore when Jesus comes back, you know, he's going to go here. No, the Bible's very clear. The Mount of Olives was special to Jesus because it's the place of his returning. He's coming back to the same place. And here's why that's so important. Look at verse 9 of Zechariah 14. It says, The Lord will be king over the whole earth, and on that day... There will be one Lord, and his name 
the only name. Wow. You can't make that stuff up. When Jesus comes back, the whole earth is going to know it. Everyone's going to see it. It's going to happen. It's going to shake everything. It's going to split that mountain in half. And the Bible says he comes back and everyone's going to realize there's only one Lord. And there's only one name. You know what you and I need to do? We need to live each day in anticipation of Jesus' return. I mean, it's crazy. We live in such a world where we live for many other things. We live for our finances. We live for, you know, uh, our kids' recitals. We live for a job or, or we live for a, a, a sporting event. Listen, there's no college football game as great as college football is. There's no national championship game that's going to outdo when Jesus returns. And nobody's going to be sitting around going, I don't get it. <laughs> oh, no, we're going to get it. We're going to see him. And those of us that know him, oh, man. You see, I've realized that when you talk about the end times this way, it either does two things. Number one, if you're a believer in Christ, it gets you excited. I mean, you're like, no more taxes? Yes. No more long road trips with my children? Yes. Lord, come now, Lord Jesus, okay? And then there's another side of people here today that when you talk about the end times, there's fear. When I was 14, I was fearful that Jesus was coming back. I mean, there were movies that people showed, you know, of Jesus is coming back and, you know, weird things happen and stuff. I, I get that. I understand that. But I want you to understand Jesus isn't coming back for you and I to live in fear. He's coming back for you and I to live in anticipation. The Mount of Olives was special because it was a place of his returning. Each day living in anticipation. I don't know when Jesus is coming back, but I know exactly where he's coming back. And I'm going to keep looking in that direction because when he comes, the whole world's going to know that he's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I'm excited about that. So in closing today, I want to ask you four questions. Number one, where do you go to meet with God? Because every person in this room needs a place of renewal. Number two, are you living life with your bags packed? Because Jesus reminded us, hey, guess what? All these things are going to happen. And when they happen, I want you to know it's the season. Number three, what do you need to do to release? And what is it that you need to release in your life to do God's will? What is it? What's holding you back? Is it pride? Is it fear? Is it failure? Number four, are you willing to live in anticipation of Jesus' return? You know, I'm amazed after the first service and I spoke this message, there were two or three people that came up to me and they said, you know what? I don't ever think about Jesus coming back. I don't live my life like that. Here's, here's what living in anticipation of Jesus' return will do. It puts things into focus. What's really important? What really matters? What am I living for? What am I not living for? Who am I living for? We call that clarity in our life. 
you live in anticipation of Jesus' return, there's going to be greater clarity and greater purpose. And you know what else there's going to be? A greater sense of urgency. Here's why. I don't know when he's coming. I just know I'm one day closer. One day closer. Today's one day closer. Today's one day closer from Zechariah 14 being fulfilled. Today's one day closer from Acts 1, 9 through 11, where he descended to be with the Father and he's coming back down in the same way. I'm one day closer to Jesus' foot stepping on this earth and taking us home. That changes how I live. Would you bow your heads with me today? All over this room with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to ask you, are you anticipating the Lord's return? Do you really believe he's coming back? I do, because the scripture is always true. There were prophecies made about when he would come the first time. There were prophecies made about the things he would do that have all been fulfilled. And this is one of the final prophecies that's been made about him when he returns. You see, if you're here today and you have a relationship with Christ, that excites you. But if you're here today and you don't know him, there's fear and dread in your heart. And God doesn't want that for you. He loves you. And he doesn't want you to be unaware. He just wants you to be aware because the Bible says in John 14 that when Jesus died, he said, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you so that where I am, you can be with me. That's called heaven. And if you're here and you've never met Christ, you've never given your life to him, then you have an opportunity today before you leave this place to begin that relationship. And if that's you today, if you've never made that decision, would you open up your heart and would you pray this prayer with me silently right where you are? Would you invite Christ into your life? Just say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for bringing me to this place today. Jesus, I know that you died for me on the cross. I know that you rose again on the third day. Would you come into my life, forgive my sin, and be my Lord and be my Savior? Jesus, I give you the control of my life. I want you to live inside me forever. And I want to have a relationship with you. If you're here today and you prayed that prayer with me and you meant it, something really amazing just happened in your life. The Bible says you became a new creature in Christ Jesus. You're a brand new person as of right now. You have a whole new life as of right now. You have eternity as of right now. I mean, you have eternity with God, not just eternity, but you have a home in heaven as of right now. Why? Because you released that decision to follow him. But I want to talk to the second group that's here today. And those, those of us who know Christ, but we need a greater anticipation. We need a greater sense of urgency about our Christianity. I mean, when you really break it down and you look at your life, what is it you want to give your life for and what is it you want to give your life to? I don't want to give my life to religion. I want to give my, my life to a deepening, growing relationship with Christ where every day I'm finding him renewing me. Every day I'm releasing more. Every day I'm reminded that he's going to come back and every day I wait for his return. Man, 
What an incredible place the Mount of Olives was. Why? Because it was Jesus' favorite spot. I pray you live in greater anticipation. Lord, thank you for this day, for who you are. God, thank you for the people today who met you. God, I pray you would give them the courage to tell somebody that today they trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord, that they follow Christ today. They made that decision today. They released everything that was in them that was of self, and they completely placed their faith and trust in you. God, I thank you for salvation that happened in this room today. But Lord, I also thank you for the person in this room that you've called them to release whatever it is in their heart so that they can follow your will. Jesus, I thank you that you're coming back. And I know that today I'm one day closer. And whether I'm here when you come or I'm already dead when you come, I'm gonna know you come because we're gonna see you. Lord, I love you and I thank you. I thank you that you're coming back. And Lord, I wanna live every day with my bags packed. In Jesus' name I pray.